Today's episode of the Read More Podcast is brought to you by the Miami Book Fair International. Eight days each November and all year round with writing workshops, author events, and more. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Recently, I sat down with Takira Madden at the Freedom Tower in downtown Miami to discuss her memoir, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, which was published earlier this month. Takira's memoir includes the graphic depiction of a rape. Listeners who find discussion about sexual assault triggering may want to fast forward through that portion of our interview, starting at around the 15-minute mark. You grew up here in South Florida, in Boca Raton, in the 90s and early aughts. Your family was very wealthy, and you didn't lack for material things, yet your life was still very troubled. Both of your parents had serious substance abuse issues. You're also biracial. Your dad was a white Jewish man, and your mom is of Chinese and Hawaiian descent, and you struggle a bit to fit in. From an early age, you were taking care of yourself because of your parents' alcoholism and drug use, and you were put into some pretty dangerous situations because of this. But somehow you managed to come out on the other side and you're very successful now. When you think about your life and everything you went through and what you're doing now, do you call yourself a survivor? Sorry, taking a moment. That's a really uh, beautiful question. Um, I like the word survivor. Um, I think in the end, this book is about Resilience. I think because of the title, and I love the title as well, people tend to think of it before they read the book as a male-centric or father-centric book um, for father or lack of father. But in the end, through the writing of it, I realize this book is about resilience and specifically the resilience of women, in my opinion. You write a lot about secrets in this book that shaped you both as a child and even now as an adult, you also reveal a lot of family secrets in this memoir. Were you ever worried about how your family and friends would react to this? Absolutely. It's a task I took incredibly seriously. Um, Writing is my job, and it's a job I consider the greatest privilege of my life, writing and teaching. And because of that, and I think everyone is different, there's no there's no end-all be-all answer for all memoirists or writers but in my case I had to make a decision of um, who who I wanted to consult uh, who I wanted to ask permissions versus to show them pages and say what do you think of this did I did I get you right did I get the situation right in my specific particular case and story I decided that my mom mattered to me and my brothers Um, So those were the people I went to with the work early on. My mom, most of all, she's the one I asked for permission from day one before I started writing until I turned in the final copy. Um, Even post-galleys, I was considering anything she wanted changed. Um, But it was a really important dialogue for us to have over the past three and a half years of revisiting memories, some in which we never wanted to kick up those memories again and really discussing the responsibility of bringing those family secrets to light, things that we've never brought into the room before, I was now going to bring in the room through literature. And ultimately we decided 
um, that it, it was a positive thing, that these things didn't need to be uh, continually buried and buried and buried and buried, and that by, I hope, providing a beating heart and pulse behind the people in the story and a larger context, that it could be accepted finally and brought into that room in a, in, brought into the room with love, I suppose. Well, what if your mom had said, no, I really don't want you to write this. These things are very painful. Some of them are embarrassing. Uh, just please don't. What would you have done then? I would have focused on my novel <laughs> and saved this book for another time. I'm traditionally of a fiction writer. I was educated in fiction and I taught fiction for many years. So this book was really a curveball for me. It surprised me and it felt accidental in many ways. It was just the only thing I could write uh, while I was grieving my father. But if it wasn't right for my mother, it wouldn't be worth losing my relationship and trust that I've built with my mother, which has taken so many years. It, it wouldn't be worth it for my art. Um, for other people, it would be worth that for my art. I don't care about some people in the book. They're no longer in my life. But for my mother, I would just focus on my fiction and save this story for another later date. Well, you started writing and telling stories as a young girl. That's something you talk about a lot in the book. Did that play any role in you being able to withstand all the different things that you were going through because you had writing from an early age, or did that not really come into play until you were much older? I think more than the craft of writing, I've always been drawn to story and fantasy. And from my earliest memories, I was reenacting scenes from books, from movies, from television. I wanted to be Alice through the looking glass. I wanted to be the Little Mermaid. I wanted to be Matilda. Um, and even my early interest in magic, which I, I still have that interest in magic, it's because I've wanted to live in illusion. Um, so I've wanted to live somewhere else. So I think that escapism, you know, people in my family, obviously through reading the book, have found that escape through substance abuse. But for me, it's always been in story and living in the pages of my books and living even in character when I was younger to cope. You don't tell your story in a linear way. You skip you know, back and forth in time. And as a reader, I know at some points I felt that was sort of disconcerting for me, but I didn't mind it because it was, to me, very much like memories. You know, you don't, when you're thinking back on something, you don't think this happened, then that happened, then it's more, you know, you see something and it sparks a memory maybe from two weeks ago, and then that leads you back to something that happened five years ago. I was wondering, when you were writing, were you trying to invoke that feeling with the structure you chose? Absolutely. Uh, I'm glad you picked up on that. And the form is certainly not for everyone, but I wrote the only book I, I can write, and I'm I'm weird, and I like to, I like reading weird books. Lydia Yuknovich's Chronology of Water was an important one for me, in that it's all over the place and it's so shattered. And talking to Lydia and studying with her, she explained, you know, that's how grief is. That's how experience is. It's not neat or tidy or linear. It's scattershot and it's broken. And that felt so true to me that this couldn't be a really tightly knit, organized book. It had to mimic 
in some ways the experience of myself going back through these memories and sifting through them and one memory like like the lizard chapter um being connected finding unexpected connections between something like that and the domestic violence in my home and it i I wanted each piece to be in conversation with the next to almost share an inside joke or a whisper of some kind but it was important that it wasn't tidy if that makes sense Well, when you were very young, a lot of different things happened to you, a lot of very unusual things and and in some cases very awful things. I mean, you mentioned that you and your mom watched Natural Born Killers together. You were very, very young. Um, There's a a situation where you talk about you cut a mole off of your hand twice with Mm -hmm. just, you know, just a kitchen knife and uh, right there in your home. Um, Your parents traveled a lot. They left you with some... Um, questionable characters. Um, at the time when this was going on, did you realize just how uh, unconventional your upbringing was? Absolutely not. I think it was it wasn't until I even started writing this book and and talking about it, opening up that dialogue and having readership that I realized it's not totally the same as other people's childhoods. But I think all families have their secrets and their own oddities and their own strange slants. And mine certainly has those odd corners. Uh, but I, I was fortunate enough to be raised in a family, I believe, that was very much full of love, even though it might not be conventional. But I, but I think that also speaks to um, the nature of addiction, that... We feel so alone in it, and it's it's this secretive thing, and we don't open up that dialogue sooner to see how shared those experiences are. So that's one element that I knew was different, um, and in a way, I was that's the one thing I was wrong about in that I wasn't so different. So many people have addictions in their households, and the people they know and love are addicts, but I felt like that was the secretive part. The other things just felt like this is just life. Everyone must be going through this. Well, as a biracial child, you experienced a lot of racism, and we see that throughout the book. Uh, One thing that really struck me is that you just endured so many racial slurs, uh, especially from people who were supposedly your friends. You write, I am used to these comments. I don't even remember when I began hearing them. How did that affect you? I mean, it almost seems like you were just, you accepted them. And, and there's one time in the book where you pushed back against them, but most of the time you just sort of let them pass. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, looking at, back on it now, how do you think that affected how you saw yourself? I think... It wasn't clear to me until I had a greater context in the greater world after after growing up and and moving to New York and meeting new people. I that social dynamic and hierarchy and racism wasn't very apparent to me. Uh, My best friend growing up in school, which didn't make this book, but perhaps the next project was the only black girl in the school and we were best friends and some of the harshest things 
that were said to us were said by us to each other in a way almost to protect ourselves that we could say those things before other people could say them to us so they became part of our our vocabulary this kind of sarcastic self-deprecating um racially charged vocabulary and i think we both felt because we've had many conversations since as i was working on this piece that didn't make this book um that it was our it was just our way of self-preservation that by accepting it and you know being contributing to those insults and those conversations and especially using sarcasm as a tool that just helped us get through and only later could we reflect on that and see what what was really going on there through this book you also show us how you discovered your queer identity And this is teased out like a lot of the other details in the book. We see it, uh, just little hints here and there that maybe this is something you're thinking about before you actually pursue it. And once you did begin dating a woman, that you mentioned a lot of your friends and family just didn't really seem to get it. How important was it for you to show how this had been sort of brewing for a long time, even though it didn't manifest itself right away? It's a great question. I I feel excited about the fact that it's teased out so slowly in the book. I think many people who read the, the jacket knowing it's a queer coming of age story, they want it to be more they want the book to be more front loaded or they expect that with queer material. But instead I really tried to mimic the way I experienced my coming out and my own self awareness which is that, like you said, there are these small moments and hints and teases. Uh, There's a a shadow running through the first half of the book of queer desire and specific thoughts that came to me or desires. And only later, once I had my first girlfriend, did I understand what that meant. Could I I understand that knowing? So I, I hope that comes through in the book in the essay where I do finally have my first girlfriend and I really understand what's happening with me, I do go back in time to some of those moments and that was important to me because that felt true to my coming out. It wasn't until I had my first girlfriend could I make sense of those earlier experiences as, oh, I was always gay. I just, I didn't have the context to understand that. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you describe a sexual assault you experienced at the age of 12 and the assailants were high school seniors. How difficult was that for you to write about and why did you want to include it? You know, it's a really complicated question. People continually ask how healing it was for me and if I needed to write it to gain some knowledge or peace with the situation. And it's the exact opposite. I had to process that for so long until I could write about it. I had to close that box. I had to heal. I had to go through therapy, have many conversations. And the last step in my eyes was writing this piece and elevating it into a piece of art. And that wasn't about healing or unearthing something or trying to make my way through something. I had already done that work. And creating art for me feels like the final step. That being said, 
since publishing that piece, because it's different, of course, to create something versus to publish it and open up that dialogue with strangers and loved ones, since publishing it and opening up that conversation, it has been really difficult. And it's like reliving that trauma in many ways. There are also cases in which many people share their stories with me, and I feel really honored for that. But I I won't lie and say it's easy to hear graphic assault stories every day of my life, and I do. So that's been a new part of it. I do not want to shut down that conversation. Many people say, just don't answer, just don't read them, because that's going to weigh so heavily on you. But I wrote that piece, and I I write all of my work for dialogue, for meeting somebody on the other side, for meeting across the page through time and space. That is my spirituality, that is my belief of why I write. So I'm not going to shut those conversations down. And yes, it is grinding me down and it's difficult, but I'm trying to to separate my spa- myself as an artist and as a person from you know, this other person who's engaging in these conversations every day and trying to make room for all of those people to coexist and all of those tasks to be living together somehow. You dedicate this book to your parents. Some have even described your work as a eulogy of sorts for your dad. You even mentioned that you believe he helped you to write this. But, of course, there was a time when you felt like a fatherless girl. Uh, Your dad was either too high or too drunk to be able to be there for you. Or there was a time when he was just living in a different state. How do you think your life would have been different if he had been truly present throughout your whole life? I think that's... A terrific question but impossible for me to answer because I think there's a section of the book called collected dates with my father and it shows some of his most glowing beautiful moments and times we shared and also some of the more horrific moments and the dates in which he took me what I thought was a father-daughter date he would take me to a bar to get loaded those things had to coexist, for it to be my father, for it to be true to our relationship. Um, And I think most relationships that are of value to us are really complex and really complicated and full of texture and barbs. And I, it was important for me to render everyone in this story, especially my parents, as fully dimensional, complicated people. That felt truest to me. I couldn't I couldn't focus even through grief on just the positive aspects of our relationship because in my adult life we had a terrific relationship. We had a great relationship once he became sober and he was the love of my life and still is and was my best friend. But I couldn't focus on all that nor could I only focus on my childhood when things were really difficult. I had to strike the balance the best I could in one book which is why it had to be three sections And in the case of that one piece, those narratives had to run side by side, which is so much of how I view my father and also how I view addiction. Well, now I'd like to just ask you a few questions about your reading life. As you mentioned, you're really into uh, reading and you really got into books and you became sort of wanted to act out things you read and become a character. What was the first book you read where you 
actually felt seen on the page. I think Drew Barrymore's Little Girl Lost is its own character in my book because it held that role for me. Because, you know, and it's a, it's a campy, ghost-written memoir. I'm not saying it's the highest literature that stayed with me, but that doesn't matter to me, really. The books that matter to me are ones that opened up a part of myself in which I could meet writer and what I was trying to explain earlier where reader and writer can meet in this other form of space and time and that happened with Drew Barrymore's book reading about her parents addiction her own addiction her life in a household where addiction was so secretive it felt like she and I were the only two people meeting across space and time who had experienced the same thing and that was that was my book that was my book that I held under my pillow that I felt understood and heard that me and Drew Barrymore shared this this thing (laughs) that was my book and how did you come across that book you know I don't remember I wish I could it's just always been in my life I don't remember where it came from I I I can't imagine why I would have it but I did (laughs) Well, now I want to ask you about what I call your forever books. I know you read a lot. Um, If you were in a situation where you could only read three books for the rest of your life and you could, you know, pour over these and just really treasure them and enjoy them, which three would you choose? I would definitely choose Linda Berry's Cruddy. That is my, my book book. That is my companion book. I return to it again and again, and it's the book when you're asked, you know, what's the book you wish you had written? People like to ask writers that. That's my book. It says something about father-daughter relationships specifically and about the love for a parent, even when that parent is being a monster. In the case of Cruddy, it's far more extreme than my own story. The father is a monster. He's a murderer and he's abusive and he's terrible, but there's still moments of our hero, Roberta Robeson saying, but you have to understand he was still my father. And the love just still pervades the book. And when I read it for the first time, I felt that's what I wanna say for the rest of my life in my writing. I wanna strike that note. And Linda Berry is of course this just brilliant, prolific artist and writer and creative and she's my hero, I love her. So that's my first book. Um, Heather Lewis's House Rules is a really important book to me. Heather, like me, was a Sarah Lawrence, equestrian, lesbian. Um, she dealt with a lot of childhood trauma, and she writes, she wrote fiction, but it's just, it's autobiographical fiction, but she writes pain in a way that I, that I've felt feels truer than any other account I've ever read. She writes horses in a way that is not magical or idealized, but but real and sad and gritty. And I always describe her work as you could feel heat just rising from her pages. It's It feels so visceral and so true. And that book was major for me. Let's see, third book. It's a tough question. It's an island book. It's the on a desert island. Okay. Third book, I might choose Harriet the Spy. 
I might choose something that brings me back to those earliest days of falling in love with words and falling in love with observation and sensation and story and mystery. And I'm a, I'm a nostalgic person to my detriment and I, I love returning to things to remember why I do them in the first place. And it's because of those early books of Harriet the Spy, The Boxcar Children, Encyclopedia Brown. It's, it's those books, that's the reason I'm here making art. Well, now I want to ask you about a book sort of on the flip side of all that, a book that maybe you just couldn't get through or maybe you did read it, but you have a very different opinion about it than most readers or most critics. Do you have a book like that? I will say... I will say this has nothing to do with my my sheer admiration for craft and skill and brilliance, as I believe Virginia Woolf possesses all of those things, but I haven't yet had my coming to consciousness moment with her, and I look forward to that because I think it will happen. I think I've read her too too early before I'm able to have that that switch that people describe with her work. Um, I, I still read her. I always have, and I still read her, and I look to her for craft, and I look for her to her for um, compression and expansive of time, and I admire her deeply. But I haven't had that kind of soul being torn apart experiences that people have who just worship at the feet of Virginia Woolf. Well, what are you reading right now? I'm reading Mitchell Jackson's Survivor Math. I think his sentences are just exquisite and his story I should say stories because this book is really interesting he's going to the stories of other people in his family and community and they're all pictured in the front of the book but he won't say whose story is is whose and I think that strikes so many interesting notes to me about universality versus specificity in in Mitchell's experience and in the American experience and I'm really loving that book. I'm also reading an early galley of Chelsea Beaker's Godshot which is a a southern novel and it's fantastic. Yeah. What about your own work? What are you writing right now? I'm planning on going back to my novel as soon as I finish this tour. I'm not the kind of writer who can simultaneously do these events and these interviews and then go back home and be in a different world. I need my grounding to be fully immersed in a big project like that. So on the road, I'm writing some essays to correspond to this book that I hope will shed some light on different elements of this book. But as far as a big project, I'm going to wait until things settle down a bit and get back to my novel. I'm really excited to move back to fiction and you know, not be sifting through my own life and my own and personal conversations with my family and friends every single day and to just be in a new world that will still be mine but but also someone else's to create other people to be in conversation with every day. T. Kira Madden, thank you so much for stopping by to talk about your work. Thank you for having me. This was lovely. T. Kira is on a big North American tour right now. You can find out when she's going to be in your area by going to her website, tkiramadden.com. You can also find out how to win a free signed copy of Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls on our website, readmorepodcast.com. 
And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. You can also support Kira and the show through buying the book on our site. You can follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more.